0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit audio bandwidth for security now is provided by winamp for android the ultimate media player for your desktop and android device featuring wireless sync download it free at winamp.com android Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 285, recorded January 26th, 2011. Fuzzy Browsers. Security Now is brought to you by Ford. Introducing the all-new 2012 Ford Focus Electric with voice-activated sync and my Ford Touch featuring gas-free power, zero CO2 emissions, and battery management technology that lets you go the distance. Learn more at FocusElectricPower.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, your privacy online, and who better to do that than the man at, uh, at going to say S-G-G-R-C. <laughs> That's his Twitter handle, grc.com. It's good to talk to you Steve Gibson.
1: Leo, great to be with you again as always. For episode 285, we're going to talk about fuzzy browsers. Are the browsers fuzzy or somebody? I mean, are they actually fuzzy? Well, they're actually they're fuzzier than we wish they were. Uh, we wish they were really solid and uh, sort of in one piece and not something you would characterize as being fuzzy or or furry or flaky. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, they are. It turns out, and uh, we're going to talk about the the details of browser fuzzing, which is the practice of of writing scripts for browsers specifically for the purpose of stressing them. And demonstrating where there are unknown problems. Very interesting. turns out it's it's frighteningly successful. That is, this whole process. So much so that Mozilla has incorporated browser fuzzing into their standard test suite now. Wow. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But I imagine there's
0: a few security updates on your plate today.
1: We've got some updates and some news. Uh, And speaking of Google, uh, Chromium... Uh, or the the Google Chrome browser uh, uh, just got itself updated like about a week ago. um, And they gave their so-called Elite Chromium Security Award to Sergei uh, Glazunov. And he won, actually, they call it a charity. So he received a charitable contribution for this particular problem that he found. He found a handful of them, but it was... Three thousand one hundred and thirty-three point seven dollars, which of course is elite, elite Uh, (laughs) in elite speak. And they had they had announced, and we talked about it before in the podcast, that they would reserve this amount for people who found really bad problems because they wanted or like really difficult to reproduce. I mean, basically, for a security researcher who really earned the you know you know earned the the discovery which he apparently did. This is a critical problem um, the uh, the Google Chrome people felt with a problem with stale pointers in the speech handling for the Chrome browser. Um, there was this one critical problem, 13 other problems rated high and two that were rated medium. High security um, problems receive $100 and medium ones receive $500. And actually, Sergey. Got a, whole, a handful of them, so he pretty much cleaned up. Um, <laughs> uh, this was a good. This was a good month for him, and of course, all of us who are using all of the people using Chrome get the benefit of it having fewer problems now than it did before. Very nice. I received a. Uh, speaking of SGGRC through Twitter was the first channel that I saw the notice. Uh, then that, that I saw it elsewhere. Really nice news. Starting today. Uh, probably not not this moment for people who are listening to this live but i would imagine anyone hearing the podcast later this evening or like for example thursday the 27th facebook has just announced this morning in their blog their security blog that they're now offering 100% ssl and https options oh that is awesome yes um, the the URL for that page I've got a a, um, a, a shortened URL o n dot f b dot m e slash lowercase i h uppercase q uppercase z lowercase i v.
0: Well, that's easy.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I did I did tweet it. I tweeted it immediately good, when I good, saw good. the news and and gave credit to the guy who sent it to me. Um, and then immediately afterwards, a few other of the main tech channels picked up on it. That's a fantastic. But, this is in response to
0: Fire Sheep, obviously.
1: Exactly. Now, now, in, in fairness to Facebook, they responded so quickly after Fire Sheep that they were already working on this, that I think this was an issue that was already on their radar. We might imagine, though, that they gave it more acceleration, that they, they you know, put some more effort into it um, to make it happen. Quoting from this page, they said, "Quote, starting today, we'll provide you with the ability to experience Facebook entirely over HTTPS. You should consider enabling this option if you frequently use Facebook from public internet access points found at coffee shops, airports, libraries, or schools. The option will exist as part of our advanced security features, which you can find in the account security section of the account settings page." I did go there after having someone else respond to my tweet saying, "Ah, "I don't see it," Um, and and sure enough, you know, because I've got a Facebook account that I maintain just for exactly this purpose. I don't actually, I'm not active there anymore, Leo, probably than you are. But um, I I did look. Say that, but I am. uh, I got sucked back in once again. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, when I last looked, it wasn't there, but presumably sometime today. On January twenty sixth, 2010, this feature will be added. And I, I don't have to tell any of our listeners who are Facebook users, check for it over the next few hours or days. Turn it on. And the good news is wherever you are using Facebook, Facebook itself will then will work to keep you over an HTTPS connection whenever possible, uh, which will, as we know with uh, threats like fire sheep lurking around will enhance your privacy and security. Um very good news. They I pick, also I think have a one-time password they say. Well, they mentioned that they're going to and I I got excited about that and you know read the rest of the blog and could not find it anywhere. So, I think they're talking about getting there. I mean, they're it's even the fact that they're talking about that's is, is a good sign. It means that you know they're beginning to be more serious about security. So, being as big as they are and as significant as they are, that's that's just good news. Um, I picked up a little bit of news uh, relative to the uh, privacy of employee email. You and I have talked several times, Leo, about how people need to remember that email that you use when you're at work really is is not private. You need to consider it as as a commu- you're using your employer's equipment, your employer's bandwidth and connectivity. So don't consider that private. There was a um, a, a suit raised when a secretary—I don't know what the exact whole story was—but something about her becoming pregnant shortly after she began her employment. Her employer got upset because presumably, she, you know, shortly after being hired, she would now need maternity leave or something. But anyway, so there was there was you know the lawyers got involved. And what happened was that the, it went up to an appeals court that ruled, uh, quoting from their ruling, the way they phrased it, the emails sent via company computer under the circumstances of this case were akin to consulting her lawyer in her employer's conference room in a loud voice with the door open so that any reasonable person would expect that their discussion of her complaints about her employer would be overheard, the court wrote. So that that is what the court said relative to the the issue. And the, and the issue was attorney-client privilege. Um, at some point, they were trying to uh, take the position right. that. That this could not be used as evidence in the suit because this was uh, attorney-client privilege protected under attorney-client privilege, and what the appeals court said. And this actually does change some some law that, ha- or or some prior decisions, which is why it got to the appeals court. Previously, there had been some instances where, for whatever reason, attorney-client privilege privilege in a in a situation like this was held. And In this case. Um, the California appeals court said, nope, um, you know, uh, exactly as they um, expressed it. Cool. So, so be aware, um, you know, if, if someone has to have a secure email dialogue at work, you know, our users know uh, that is our, 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 our listeners know that you could use, for example, Gmail over HTTPS, which would prevent it from being Uh, eavesdropped on so long as your browser has not received a security certificate from your employer that would specifically allow them to filter SSL connections. And again, the way to check that is when you have established an HTTPS connection to Gmail, then check the certificate associated with the page, typically by right-clicking on it and checking properties and look at the certificate and see whether... It whether the the uh, the chain of certificate authorities goes directly from Google to their root uh, authority and not through something that looks like you know some third-party SSL eavesdropping monitoring system. In which case, you really would not be able to to have any kind of communication that would not be eavesdropped by the the corporate network. Um, we have talked about net neutrality a lot, and I think that'll be a, not, not a huge topic for us because it's a little bit off topic, but I wanted to mention that Verizon is challenging that ruling that we did talk about a few weeks ago where the FCC, uh, took the position that, uh, providers could not thr- selectively throttle bo- broadband traffic over their networks and, and, it's not been clear that the FCC has the authority provided by statutory law that's in place now to do that. And so Verizon is saying the FCC doesn't, which will probably force legislation to be created that gives the FCC or somebody that kind of regulatory power, which it may or may not have, depending on how Verizon's suit comes out. So, uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, uh, yeah. And speaking of unfortunate, uh, a U.S. this week, a U.S. congressional panel is holding a hearing to consider reviving the impossible to implement ISP data retention bill, which we have talked about. Which would, if it were enacted into law, would require ISPs to retain their customers' internet data for two years, which I mean, I, anytime hearings are held, I'm sure the ISPs must sit in front of of our representatives and and senators or whomever is is in these um, meetings, these hearings, and explain to them that it's just a physical impossibility. I mean, that, that you know, of course, immediately and, and as part of the story, they talked about, well, we want to be able to track down child pornographers. And so, you know, they march out child pornography as the, you know, the... The, the gotcha, it's like, well, you're not for child pornography, are you? Um, although, in fact, what we know is that, as you and I were discussing, actually, before we began recording this, Leo, um, electronic data and electronic privacy is, seems to be something we're losing very quickly. Yeah, I hate it when they,
0: uh, you know, conflate child pornography with all of this because it's not, it has nothing to do with it. It's
1: just an easy, easy out, you know. right. Right, it's something that everyone is going to vote who's it, to. Yeah, who's to for work that? To prevent nobody's yeah, for exactly. that. Exactly, but that's exactly. not what this is about. And, yeah, and the idea that that an ISP would need to record two years—essentially, we're talking about two years of all the traffic through their network—that is. Because, of course, their their network traffic is the sum of their customers' traffic. And what the people who are pushing the bill want is the ability to go back for a given customer, presumably under warrant, and rummage through everything that that person has done for the two prior years. So – Uh, I mean, it just (laughs) I mean, if you were Google, sure, you've got a database that's large enough to hold two years of all your customers traffic. But that's nothing that's in place like that is is happening now. They're not talking about a real time tap. They're talking about recording everything for two years. So hopefully um, much as somebody wants this to happen, uh, saner heads will prevail and say, look, we just we can't do that. This um, is, this is an that,
0: issue we were talking about before uh, the the show began, but I, at some point I'd love to talk more about these pen register uh, search warrants and how they're being, I think, misused by law enforcement and uh, you know, in really unconstitutional ways. We're being spied upon, and it's just getting yeah. worse. And it's because it's electronic, yeah. and and so it's just deemed somehow less private. It's just appalling.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, it does make it easier. It's oh, not yeah. like you have to, you don't have to go install transmitters in someone's home and car. You just, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, give them a subpoena. And as you're saying, in this case, now, subpoenas are no longer even necessary. Right. Um, Cisco's annual 2010 security report indicated that cybercrime appears to be migrating from desktops Uh, Which, as we know, are becoming increasingly well secured, as are the desktop users, I think, to mobile devices, which are inherently much more vulnerable. So it's probably not a surprise to anyone, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, that Cisco is seeing this and noting that this is, that that our mobile devices, which are becoming increasingly powerful, are becoming magnets for cybercrime. Not good and certainly not surprising. Yeah. Um, Now, the big news and interesting news I held for last, and that is that both Mozilla and Google have stirred on the on the issue of do not track behavior. We talked um last week about Giorgio's adding this feature this um the do not track the x hyphen do not track header. To no script. It had been there actually since a little bit before the beginning of the year. And um, someone brought it to my attention. I checked my outgoing headers from my browser when I'm using Firefox. And sure enough, those headers were there. Um, just of course, in the last couple... <laughs> you have to pay attention
0: to it, right? It doesn't mean anything if somebody does not Exactly. So, it. Yeah.
1: so, okay, there's two different approaches. Mozilla is introducing, unfortunately, a different do-not-track header... <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> there. You know
0: why not? Because is, it's always been good when there've been many, many standards that uh, you have to adhere to. It always makes uh, sense. Ex- yeah,
1: exactly. So um, uh, theirs is called X hyphen tracking hyphen choice. So X tracking choice, and and then you you add to it. Then it's colon, and then like don't track me or something. Don't um, track me, and, bro. And, oh, I'm sorry. It, I'm sorry. It's tracking preference, and then it's colon do not track. Right. So so Mozilla's is tracking hyphen preference colon do not track, and it's Giorgio who replied to the Mozilla blog posting, and he said, um, in you know, in uh, I'm sure English is not his first language. He said, why inventing yet another header X tracking choice rather than reusing the X. Do not track proposal, which, of course, is what he adopted with NoScript, which is already implemented in NoScript and Adblock Plus and also endorsed by Mozilla. So, uh, you know, who knows why many cooks are involved. So what Mozilla is doing and they recognize that it that that following this is optional, that is, is is not something that they're mandating. They're just saying we're going to allow a user to turn this on And send this tracking preference header out with all queries. Now, I'm all for it. I like this solution, as I've said many times. In fact, you know, months ago, I've been talking about just adding a header like this, and and this has all finally come to pass. It does require voluntary compliance until legislation, which does seem to be rumbling around in the U.S. Congress at this point, legislation would then um, make obeying and honoring a header like this, mandatory. Now, Google has taken a different approach with their Chrome browser. And and I've studied what they've done, and I think I understand it, but it's not at all clear. They've got a, a new extension called Keep My Opt-Outs, which is an optional extension that can be added to Chrome. And from what I can see, keep my Keep My Opt-Outs must have the effect, although they didn't say so anywhere, so I can only guess this from the name, of, of preserving opt-out cookies when they exist. Now, by, by, by looking at the blog and following some links, I discovered an, a site I had not seen before. There is a site called aboutads.info, A-B-O-U-T-A-D-S dot info, where you can go. Which is uh, sort of appears to be an advertising industry sort of communal site uh, that's talking about, you know, the nation, the the, the nature of tracking and an online behavioral uh, profiling and so forth. What's interesting is that there's another page about ads.info slash choices. You need to have scripting enabled and. uh, lattice when you go there so when I went I saw that something wasn't working in fact it told me that I had to turn on scripting so I using no script I enabled scripting for that page and then what happened was it enumerated a large number of known advertisers and and this site allows with it sort of provides a UI that allows people to to create opt-out cookies for all of the advertisers that support opt-out cookies. So if we didn't have this, you'd have to go manually to each of these different advertisers and go wiggle around through their websites and figure out how to opt-out of each individual advertiser's tracking. What's nice about about ads.info slash choices is it pulls it all together into one place. So I've experimented with it and it works. You're able to just say select all or like choose the ones that you sort of, that don't have a good looking taste um, for their cookies um, and then say, okay, I want opt-out cookies. So what happens is since only... The site which owns the cookie can set the cookie. This script doesn't have the ability to do so. So it must be going out and to, to each of these different sites using some sort of protocol that they've agreed upon to have each of those sites plant a new opt-out cookie in your browser, which which did happen. And I confirmed that it happened. and. And so that's what about ads.info/choices does. And if you're using Firefox, you can do it, you can actually use it with any browser that is that supports scripting. So presumably then Chrome's ex- new extension kept my opt-outs does something to prevent them from being lost or deleted. So for example, if a user flushes all their cookies, this would take priority and it would keep these opt-out cookies in place, even if you otherwise cleared all your cookies. Now, the one thing I did note was that DoubleClick.net is not listed among all of these uh, advertisers at AboutAds.info. There's something like, I don't know, 60 different advertisers. And the, the the script that ran had some problem enumerating some of them so that I was only able to end up with like eight or so that I was able to opt out of, out and like 39 some were still, um, they were sort of there, but not working yet. Who knows what's going on? But anyway, so about ads.info slash choices is something interesting to look at. Now, so Chrome's not adding a header. I would rather they added a header like, like Firefox is going to do, the Mozilla guys are doing, like NoScript and Giorgio have already done for us. But... Um, You know, this is something. Microsoft and IE have an entirely different approach. Um, They've got something called tracking protection lists or TPLs. Um, They've just recently blogged about this. This will be a feature in IE9, which is, in some senses, it's better and in, unfortunately, in some other senses, it's not so good. Uh, it's better in that it is a, these tracking protection lists are XML files, which are a moderately confusing syntax, unfortunately, but powerful that allow both enable and disablement for, i.e., to go to a third party. So, you are you have the ability to block third parties, that is, to block IEs, IE9s, following links to sites that you have blocked. So, and this doesn't, as I understand it, it doesn't even allow IE to go. It's not a matter of it, like, blocking tracking. It's blocking you going, which I think is fantastic um websites may object to this something like this was going to be in IE8 but Microsoft removed it under pressure from advertisers and so we didn't get that so from IE's blog they say IE9 will offer consumers a new opt-in mechanism called tracking protection to identify and block many forms of undesired tracking Tracking protection lists will enable consumers to control what third-party site content can track them when they're online. So, the, the reason this is troublesome is that I'm, it's not clear where these lists come from. For example, you might go to a site that is able to sense that you are not following its links to its ads and which scripting the site could do in, in the same way that site is able to say, hey, you've got to turn JavaScript on if you want to use everything we're doing here. So a site could say, you must load this TPL, and they would provide you with their own customized tracking protection list for them, which would get merged in in some fashion to provide overrides ...to your otherwise disabling this. Anyway, you, you get a sense for this, Leo. I mean, this just sounds like Shh. a disaster. It is. I mean, yeah. It's worse than <laughs> I thought, and I thought it was bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know how this is going to settle out. I mean, again, it's why I just love the idea of a do not track header. Just have, if, if, for users who know they don't want to be tracked, turn that on. I don't even care if it's off by default... You know, just turn it on once and have it be sticky. Yes. And so that way the browser is broadcasting with every query it makes. It's saying, do not track me. And then, yes, the argument is, well, but that requires compliance, you know, voluntary compliance. And it's like, Yo, yes, until we have legislation in place, which it seems like we're going to have to have anyway. So the only alternative would be you know something like no script or cookie management or something like these TPLs the the IE9 tracking protection lists which also seems like a big snarled nest of of mess so anyway this is you know we're we're at the beginning of solving a problem which I'm glad the industry is looking at. I'm glad Congress is making noise. I'm so glad the browser vendors. I mean, everybody, this is like, it's not like no one's paying attention to this. Everybody is paying attention to this. Unfortunately, what that means is we've got, you know, 19 different approaches and we haven't reached consensus. But we've been there before. In fact, we'll be talking about the document object model a little bit later when we talk about browser fuzzing. And boy, that was a disaster in the beginning. And it wasn't until... Uh, the World Wide Web, the W three Consortium, you know, stepped in and said, "Okay, here's how we're going to do it." That we finally, uh, you know, got some sanity there. And speaking of lack of sanity, uh, Bruce Schneier blogged just the other day, I think it was yesterday, that a group of students at the Chinese user- University in Hong Kong have figured out how to store data in bacteria. <laughs> 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 okay. Uh, they have an article a, a webpage that I have a link uh, in our show notes which talks about uh they say it's massively parallel bacterial data storage system error tolerant data encoding and decoding system recombination module for de- for for data encryption and then, then then this is clearly again this English is not their first language not surprisingly, and then they said, ready for the exciting future of biocomputer. So uh, in Bruce's blog, he, he cites some other people that have looked at the article and and scratched their head uh, about what it is that they mean when they say bioencryption, which is the term they've coined. Um, Bruce's, <laughs> Bruce's comment predictably was, well, I hope they haven't created some sort of new encryption, but rather they're using traditional encryption before they use their bacterial storage to store the <laughs> encrypted data. so because yeah, you can't encrypt that, bacteria. that <laughs> That's next. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's that's in the... the, the whack. I guess I should put this under errata. Um, or anyway, just wacky. Wacky would Lists, be good. Uh, wacky, yeah, the wacky category. Yeah, data storage in bacteria. And apparently, Leo, the bacteria can store a lot of data. So, the students are quite excited about this. Um, What I do have in errata is uh, a note about an interesting IPv4 countdown uh, uh, tweeter or Twitter or whatever that is, you know, at sign. uh, I I guess it's 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 a a Twitter handle. handle. Yeah. It's a Twitter handle. So, it's at IPv4 countdown. Just all run together um and this person is tracking the the surprisingly rapid uh disappearance of ipv4 addresses so i just thought our listeners any any listeners who are twitter followers and i know we've got about 16000 cuz they're following me uh might get a kick out of adding I, ipv4 countdown to the handles that they follow. It's very low traffic. It only posts when there's been some loss of IPv4 address. It looks address like it's
0: every six hours, roughly.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and it's dropping by millions. Yeah, every six hours, another million down. <laughs> wow. I think we're, what, it's like 37
0: million? No, I think. 29 million.
1: Ooh, wow,
0: yeah, yeah. I guess it was yesterday that I looked. And so another one right. just came in, 28 million. That's really interesting. I mean, literally every—it's roughly every. Well, it's every million, but that's roughly every six hours. Yeah.
1: Wow. So, uh, so somebody do the math. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't. It ain't good. Yeah. Get your cell phone now. Yeah. No, actually, that's. Well, it won't be a problem. Don't. do don't, don't hyperventilate. Don't worry about it. In fact, when I posted this, I did tweet about this, and I said, "Don't get upset." I mean, this looks like we're running out of IPs very quickly. What this actually is is this is the. This is the IANA allocating from their final batch, uh, and, and we talked about this. Is this like you know, the recently. last class A? Well, yes. This is now. Th- this is them giving away their blocks to the registries. This is not the registries giving those away. So, so this is, and, and we've expected that in the in the first couple months of 2011, the IANA would discharge the balance of wow. the blocks that it had available to the major registries, you know, um, Aaron and 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 so forth, all the major. Is it, NICs. I, is it IANA still, or is it ICANN now? I can uh, ICANN superseded IANA. Okay, I, I think you're right. It's yeah. it's ICANN. Yeah. I'm showing my age. So, uh, <laughs> John Postel is no longer with us, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> so... so oh, it I used still to be, like but it wasn't I so long ago, there was one guy,
0: John Postel at USC,
1: was yeah. the guy. That was it. And, and all of those early RFCs had his name yeah. on it. I mean, when I was reading about, you know, the originally reading about the TCP IP stack, that's where it came from, and yeah. email protocol and so forth. Yep. Um, By the way, Tom course, Johnson, I, who
0: does our mail route stuff, with, uh, worked for Tom, John, John. So he knows John. Oh, room. no New, kidding. New John, yeah. Well, which is pretty good a pretty good pedigree for somebody who does email spam fighting. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. And I do have a, a short note uh, from another satisfied Spinrite customer who wrote to Greg slash GRC. Uh, Greg, of course, being my tech support guy, who said, I just wanted to send along a message of thanks for a great product. I was able to assist one of my customers in recovering data off a drive that I did not think was recoverable. When I got started, the drive was recognized by the BIOS, but that was about it. And setting the drive up as a slave drive in another machine caused Windows to claim that the drive was not formatted. Check disk failed to run completely. He said, Spinrite started out saying that it would take 4,500 hours. To repair and recover the drive, so I basically gave up, but decided to let spinright run for a while. After 26 hours, Spinrite claimed that it was well. Spinrite would have been 16 percent done, um, although I guess he's saying claimed because obviously the estimate is coming down rapidly. If it did 16 percent in 26 hours, and it's not going to be 4,500 hours for the whole drive, Th- that's typically something that does happen when Spinrite it's slow at runs. first. Exactly. Yeah. Runs into trouble immediately. It, it There's nothing Spinrite can do except assume that the drive's condition is going to be what it has seen so far. So it's continually reevaluating its estimate for completion based on the history of what it's seen so far. So at 26 hours, it's claimed to be 16% done. On a whim, uh, writes Peter, I interrupted the process and tried the drive in a slave scenario again. At this point... I was able to recover much of the data. I have, le- I since, I, I have since let Spinwright go back to work to finish the process. Even if it takes a few days, you have impressed me and made my customer extremely happy as they had no backup of their data. Thanks again, Peter Elkins at Omnitech Computer Services. Isn't and nice? Pete, thank you for the note.
0: We are going to get to the fuzzy browsers next, Steve Gibson. Uh, I, I, just a word of warning: you have about a half an hour. Is that enough time to get the fuzzy browsers unfuzzed? The clock. Yep. That'll, <laughs> thank you. that will do it. And, and as long as uh, as long as we're talking, uh, let me talk a little bit about our friends at at Ford, who uh, do this great new thing called the Ford Electric Focus, becoming out in 2012. I already decided it's my uh, my next car. <laughs> Uh, I was going to retire the Mustang, but uh, I've been told by, with no uncertain terms, by by Lisa, my CEO, that no, you're not retiring it. I'm taking it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's easy to fight over these great Ford vehicles, especially with the Ford SYNC. I love the SYNC. True hands-free calling, 911 assist, turn-by-turn directions, all in a great package. And, of course, the new uh, 2012 Ford Focus Electric will have sync with my ford touch now understands ten thousand commands you can listen to pandora and stitcher from your phone uh you can manage your battery in fact there's an app for the iphone and for android phones that lets you manage the car uh you, you can do things like have the phone say okay it's time to charge now because the rates have gone down things like that uh, complete control of everything going on through this incredible my ford touch uh I'm, I'm just so excited. The, the the Ford Focus Electric will charge on a standard 120-volt outlet. You could get the – in fact, they're going to go through, I think, Best Buy. The Geek Squad can come in and install a 240-volt outlet for you very inexpensively and easily, and then you'll get three-hour charging. Um, amazing miles per charge. That's We don't talk about miles per gallon anymore. Miles per charge uh, giving you an incredible, incredible economy. No CO2 emissions. I can't wait. I just can't wait. I want you to check it out, focuselectricpower.com. That's the website, focuselectricpower.com. In fact, I'm very jealous because in about three weeks, John C. Dvorak and Paul Thorat are going to get a test drive, one in Madrid. And we'll bring back some videos so you can see it. They're going to Madrid to, to be among the first, including some of you who won a trip, uh, to be the, some, some of the first to test drive the new 2012 Ford Focus. dot focuselectricpower.com to learn more. Steve Gibson today is talking fuzzy browsers or browser fuzzing.
1: What are you? Yes. T- what so are we, talking we, about? we we touched on this a couple times re- in recent weeks because um, Michael uh, Zaluski, who is a Google security guy, uh, released his what he called cross fuzz, c r o s s underscore f u z z, for browsers. Um, And our listeners will remember that Microsoft tried to uh, lobby him to to not release this at the beginning of 2011, as he had notified them six months before he was going to, because he provided them with his tool um, in June or July of 2010, with the plans to um, fix or, or to release this in at the beginning of 2011, and telling them that his his browser fuzzer found some fuzziness in their browser. And that is in internet explorer and that they should take it, you know, take it seriously and see about fixing the problem. He never heard back from them until the middle of December, shortly before it was deadline time for him to release his browser fuzzer. And they said, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, Now we're able to reproduce the problems, which we weren't able to reproduce before. So, we haven't yet had a chance to fix them, so please don't let the world know about these problems, which would happen when you release the, the, the fuzzer. However, it turns out that some um, um, malware authors, it is strongly believed, independently discovered the problem because um, looking at Google's search history, they were um, uh, Michael was able to see that... Um, there had been some people, I don't remember if it was Russia or China, I think it was in China, that had been doing some search queries that clearly indicated that they knew where this problem was in IE. So it didn't come from him. It was already out in in the wild. Uh, So he defended his decision to release, um, I mean, notwithstanding Microsoft's uh, rather lame, well, you only gave us six months and we didn't take you seriously until two weeks before you were going to release this uh, approach. Okay, so what is all this fuzzing? Um, fuzzing is a software testing technique which essentially sends malformed junk, um, maybe invalid data, unexpected data, or just pseudo-random data, you know, or all of the above, to the inputs of some sort of interpreter or parser Um, which is expecting to receive normally good data that it's it's been designed to receive, um, specifically for the purpose of seeing whether that software can be destabilized by inputs that it was not designed to handle. Um, Wikipedia tells us that the term fuzz originated for the first time in, in the fall of 1988 from a class project topic, in a Professor Barton Miller's graduate uh, University of Wisconsin advanced operating system class, the assignment was titled "Operating System Utility Program Reliability—The Fuzz Generator," <laughs> which is where the, the term first arose. Um, and and so his his group of graduate students experimented with with, with this concept of throwing junk at, at operating system utility program to see if they could break them. And famously, we'll remember that um, Mark um, uh, Mark down at EI in Aliso Viejo um, and, and EI themselves had a lab set up where they were essentially doing fuzzing of windows and finding windows problems Uh, Problems in the Windows API by by calling functions in Windows, providing it with um, with unexpected data, and then when one and they had a whole lab set up of machines running, and every so often one would crash, and when when that would happen, they would they would look essentially at the audit trail of what had been sent to cause Windows to crash, and then that would give them clues. For looking closely at at what it was that their so their automated basically noise generator had done to cause the crash, and this is one of the ways that EI has found and uncovered many security problems um, in the Windows operating system. Now, this is a different approach to to normal code testing uh, than has traditionally been done. What normally happens is that there are essentially two parallel coding efforts. There, First, you have a specification for some software that you want written. And the specification determines, you know, it specifies what it is that the software will do. So you have one team, normally the big team, of, of coders who, whose job it is to code that spec that is to turn that specification into functioning code you then have normally sort of like the 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 also ran group they don't get as much glamour they're not normally the you know uh, held in as high regard but they're the test suite coders i would argue that in this day and age they need as much glory and as much attention as the the main product coders the test suite coders have the job of writing code to test the code that the main code writers write so they're also working from the same specification but there but their job is to to, uh, to essentially create an automated test suite which once the the product coders say okay we've we've read the spec we've very carefully Coded it. The, our code does what it's supposed to. Well, so how do you know that? Well, you know, a user could 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 play with it and click on things and and see. What's much more efficient, though, is if you have is like I mean, one for one for every chunk of code that you have, you have a test suite. Um, this is very common in, for example, in in the crypto field wh- where where you have a bunch of of known. Of of known test data, which you encrypt under a given key, and and you then you know what you should get out if the code is correct. It's the way we verify that that cryptographic code is working the way it should. Is is we 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 run standard patterns through. Um, so formal test suite development is something that has been done for years. Um, um, it's sometimes called regression testing. It's something that Microsoft does. Is they have a huge test suite, so that so they want to make sure when they're when they're in Windows rummaging around changing things, they haven't broken something that used to work. Well, the, the only practical way to do that, you can't just have you know a, a a ton of users sitting there trying to see if Windows is broken. You need you need something to exercise windows so these exercisers these test suites have always been created but notice that that they're being created from the same specification that the coders use and and while the while the the test suite guys can try to to, to find problems generally they have the same motivation that the test suite coders, that that, that the main product coders do. That is, they're tr- they're working to show that the code meets the specification right. rather than rather than not. There's so, a um,
0: there's a um, kind of a theory in coding these days: test driven. Uh, programming where you start by writing a test which fails immediately and then you write the code to fulfill a test but it doesn't test for these kinds of things it tests exactly as you say i mean it's a good way to code you have fewer bugs but it really only tests to see if the code does what it's what it's supposed to do doesn't see if there's a buffer overflow or something like that
1: well and in fact in my own history grc a little bit of grc lore that has that no one knows is after SpinWrite was up and running and launched um, and remember, Leo, I've talked about how I got the GRC grew to about 23 people. Right. I think it was at its, lar- at, at its largest. Well, I had a, a, an R&D department with four or five programmers, and uh, we were working on something to do next. Um, this was back in the days before caching was even part of the operating system um there was you had like windows had smart drive or dos had smart drive that it, that it came with later and then there was smart drive in windows there were third party caching utilities which dramatically sped up the operation of the system well grc developed one called propel and it was as you might imagine better than all of the others um Uh, The programmer who wrote it was really gifted. I mean, this guy was a spectacular world-class programmer. Um, Unfortunately, Propel to do what what we wanted it to was very complicated. Well, I was the guy who wrote the tester for it. And so I wrote a sort of a generic program which read and wrote in a... In a very pseudo-random, confusing, worst-case data pattern checking kind of thing, uh, to and from the disk. The idea would be that if if the if the cache was not there, then the program would be writing actually to the hard drive, and it would be creating sectors with pseudo-random data in a you know and reading and writing and overlapping and then when it read it it would check that it would read back the data to verify that it was what it expected to have stored in that sector the idea being that we, we needed to ch- verify that inserting this cache in between my program and the hard drive didn't change anything mm. that is you know everything still worked right the problem is it would run for a while and crash. Oh. That is, there was some problem that the that introducing propel this never shipped. And now we know why never <laughs> shipped hard drive cache um, into the into the chain caused to fail. Well, timing and, is so
0: complicated in hard drives. I mean,
1: oh my goodness! And and actually, uh, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Propel never saw the light of day. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it was ready. It wasn't, it wasn't like this was the only thing that kept it from being a product, but you know, I have my own experience with this kind of, with this kind of approach and can, and vouch for, you know, how good it is. So CrossFuzz, when CrossFuzz was created last summer, um, it found more than 100 problems in every single browser. No browser was unscathed. The largest number of bugs were identified in Firefox. Um, uh, Michael himself found 10, and then another 50 were found by the, by the Mozilla people when they integrated. Um, cross-fuzz into their existing testing platform. The Firefox issues have since largely been addressed. So we're talking like 60 problems that have been found have largely been addressed, but some more ob- obscure and hard to analyze crashes are still occurring. So even today, six plus months later, if you run cross-fuzz on Firefox, You can kill Firefox. Really? Wow. All WebKit-based browsers were brought to their knees with approximately 24 crashes found. Uh, The developers were notified in July of, of last year, 2010. And since then, all relevant patches have been released, yet some very subtle problems persist. And Opera was the other target of CrossFuzz, Um, And their authors were, uh, Opera's authors were notified also at the same time in July of 2010. And all of the frequent crashes crashes found by CrossFuzz were fixed in Opera 11. So what is CrossFuzz? How does it work? To understand that, we need to dip a little into a topic we've never covered before, which is the so-called document object model or the DOM of browsers. Um, when scripting was first created, that is JavaScript, which was originated by Netscape for the, uh, you know, senior Netscape browser at the time, I think might've been two or three, one of the very early Netscape browsers. The idea was they wanted to create scripting on the client side so that, so that a website could download not only a static page page but also some scripting, which the client, the browser, would execute, it would interpret, in order to make the experience more dynamic for the user. And, of course, we know that that's been a mixed blessing because scripting is a real security problem, also a tremendous benefit. The problem is that pages at the time were described by HTML, the, um, the so-called hypertext modeling language and html would describe paragraphs and frames and and tables and forms and 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 basically all of the content of the web page but there was no means for a script running on that page to access the elements of the page. For example, to do fancy effects uh, if you rolled your mouse over something or to be able to notice, like, like check the an input field when you were asking for a credit card number to quickly check to see whether it meets that rule of nines, the, the way credit cards have a built-in checksum that where you can instantly tell whether there might be a typo, a, a, a digit transposition, for example, so there were useful things that you would want to do, but no way to for the for the script running to access the content of that page. So the good news is we are many years forward from those bloody early days where Microsoft had their own approach, which was incompatible with Netscape's and browsers were that were they were emerging were inventing their own. It wasn't until we finally got some standards imposed and the browsers rather reluctantly over the course of years began to converge on a single unified standard. We have that now called the document object model. And essentially what browser layout engines, which, which receive HTML, they've basically become HTML parsers, which parse the incoming HTML into the document object model description. That is, the way things have evolved is that the the browsers have become so complex, pages have become so complex, HTML, especially with the, the, the addition of CSS, cas- cascading style sheets, have gotten so complex that there is now a sort of a, a formal tree structured container for a page the the root of and and when i say it's tree structured the root of that tree is the the sort of the the anchoring document and 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 it goes by the term document and then it's the, this this the the tree form is is Sort of um, described through a through um, dotted suffixes. So, for example, you'd have document dot, and then the name of a form, and then dot the name of an input field, and or or you might have a table, and then um, you know uh, rows and columns, essentially forming a what's called a namespace, where where every single element of the page can be can be described through this 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 dotted textual representation and what that's incredibly powerful because that then allows scripting which is running on the page part of that page a means for manipulating the page's content that is so while the while the website loads down the initial html the the browser layout engine parses the html into this document object model description of the page and then scripting which is also part of that html download is itself able to access the entire contents of the page because the html describing the page has been has been translated into this dom this document object model which because there is this this textual namespace representation allows the scripting to sort of access itself so so what michael's cross fuzz algorithm does is it opens two windows containing the, the same document and, uh, and, th- and this could be an, an HTML window, an XHTML, or an SVG, a Scalable Vector Graphic uh, document, which itself is a, a distressingly complex format. Um, it then, uh, and I'm reading from, from his description, it crawls the DOM hierarchy of the first document, collecting encountered object references for later reuse... Visited objects and and collected references are tagged using an injected property to avoid infinite recursion. A secondary blacklist is used to prevent navigating away or descending into the master window. And then critically, um, random shuffling and recursion fan-out control are used to ensure good coverage. So what that means is basically he's written a script which... Explores itself. That is, it, it explores the window that that it's being targeted at to to basically build a database of all the contents of the window. He then he says he repeats the DOM crawl, randomly tweaking encountered object properties by setting them to one of previous of the previously recorded references or with some random probability to one of a handful of hard-coded, quote, interesting unquote values, like, you know, like a super large value, super small value, negative one, zero, positive one, you know. So he's got a collection of things that generally cause problems. Then he repeats this crawl of the document object mod the doc- document object model again, random calling any object methods which he has encountered. So hmm. he's also invoking JavaScript on the page that that he's, you know, basically giving a real hard time to. <laughs> he 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 calls parameters is, or or the call parameters to those object methods are synthesized using collected references and again interesting values, as he noted above. If a method returns an object, its output is subsequently crawled and tweaked in a similar manner. So if calling one of these methods, which is code on the page, if the method returns an object for the page, then he grabs that and crawls that as well. So essentially what he's done is he has he has built something to just give a seizure. To, I mean, like, to just, you know, just work the heck out of the 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 code, which is hopefully always going to behave itself, never going to have a problem, and, you know, just say, yeah, okay, fine, what you asked for was illegal. Or, yeah, if you, you know, that value doesn't make sense. We're going to ignore it. Instead, what often happens is, well, in fact, there is not today a browser which can survive. It just, I mean... One way or another, this thing is so, so horrendous to what it does is, is it just rings the code out and ultimately browsers collapse. So the, there are problems with this, That is, and there have always been problems with the fuzzing approach because making something mysteriously break is very different from finding a bug. You haven't found a bug; you've found a symptom.
0: Yeah, and but so, you've got a foot in the door.
1: Yes, so you're right. You you have and 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 what he's doing is he's auditing what he does. He's he um, he uses pseudo randomness, and we know what that means. We need, we that means that if you remember the seed, the pseudo random seed that you used for driving your pseudo random decisions, then you can. And if you start from a known good fixed condition, you can theoretically exactly reproduce what happened because it should be deterministic. So, so it still though. This is the problem: is that you know this thing might run for a day and then the browser finally gives up in defeat. It says, "Okay, I I I just can't can't do do this any longer." Can't
0: do
1: it now. The problem is, um. You haven't found the bug. You've just made something die. And for example, we never found the problem with Propel. I mean, this drove Mike, the the, the this brilliant coder, to distraction. I mean, it just it, it it would run and run and run, and then it would have a problem. It's like, oh, this sector didn't match. It's like, well, we don't know why. And you know, we're sorry, but all we can tell you is it didn't work. But we don't know why. So, so the good news is. There is this insanely aggressive tool that now exists, which the Mozilla guys, to their credit, have incorporated into their own test suite, which kills Firefox, kills Opera, kills Chrome. It kills anything you let loose. You, you know, I, I mean, it just, it, it's the destroyer. Um, it has succeeded through the last six months of its use, in rendering our browsers far more robust than before. That is to say, it takes it a lot longer to kill them than it did before, meaning that all of the problems that sort of were findable have been found. And the the, the coders learned a lot from having this thing, turning this thing loose on their browsers, and they now turn it loose routinely Hoping to see, you know, hoping it takes a long time before it brings the browser to its knees. Ultimately, uh, it does. And that's browser fuzzing. Are you done?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My apologies. I took a bite of food, and then all of a sudden you stopped talking. <laughs> I thought we were had so much more to cover. No, well, that's that, um, uh, that's really interesting stuff because it's so it is so closely related to the uh, to test suites, but it's just going the extra mile. You know, we're yeah, we're really banging well, on
1: the, it. the right. The test suites are, and, and this is what the, the advantage of fuzzing is that although you're testing it for something al- else, I guess. Well, now. It's certainly not just throwing noise. I mean, it is—that is to say, a huge amount of code had to be written to implement this this technology, which walks this this document object model hierarchy. Is is it safe and, to say it's a um, stress test? Oh, it is really. A, yes, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. It is yeah. really a stress test. Browsers should should be able to pass it. None can. The reason is that this is, I mean, if nothing else, it demonstrates how incredibly complex browsers have become in order to do everything that we ask them to do. I mean, browsers really are, uh, there's a huge amount of code in them. I mean, in order to run JavaScript, they're doing just-in-time compilation of a language into the native machine's, Tokenized pseudo language, which an interpreter then runs. I mean, you know, we take it for granted. We go to a website and it just works. Right. But I mean, there is a huge amount of stuff now under the covers, and and we know for the sake of security that it has to be robust. The problem is it's difficult to make it so. Right. So so this cross fuzz system that that i i mean i'm really happy that it exists because and it's not it just has, i guess the point is it's not just used by
0: bad guys it's it would be used by anybody who wanted to test their system right
1: yes and in fact that was the controversial aspect of it is that microsoft didn't want it released because because ie was being brought down mm-hmm. and if the bad guys the, so everybody could run it the bad guys could run it on ie and use it potentially to find new problems so now there's a race on can Microsoft I mean and, and here's the problem is when it brings the browser down again I mean I, I I can't I can't I can't emphasize this enough we still you really don't know why you just know that it died and so right. it is and if it and what and this was why Microsoft couldn't make it fail last July they really they didn't wait long enough. Or, give it time, you know. Give it time, <laughs> exactly. And what they found was that it required several different documents to be fuzzed in a row before the final document fuzzing caused the problem. So that meant that you couldn't just run, you couldn't just fuzz the last document. You had to it like reproduce the footsteps. That Michael had used to get there, which meant that some state somewhere was like bleeding across between documents. The point is that, that as we know, crashes beget, you know, malicious attacks. Crashes beget exploits. And so Microsoft was worried that a bad guy would run this and be better than they were at figuring out exactly what it was that... The fuzzing found, and then turn that into an exploit that they weren't ready for. Hmm. So, anyway, this thing exists. Browsers today, six months after its release, uh, privately to the browser authors, uh, are substantially more robust than they were, and that's why. Then Michael said, "Okay, it's uh, it's 2011. I'm gonna you know publish this, let it out to, for the world to play with, Neat. and uh, browsers." are ready for it, much more so than they were six months before right. when it just knocked them all on their butts. Very interesting stuff. Browser
0: fuzzing. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's the place to go for spinwrite the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Kind of does both. He also has a lot of free stuff there. But you'll also find show notes for this show, transcripts, I wonder how uh, Lane's going to handle the pause. <laughs> pause. Oh! Munch, munch, <laughs> munch, munch, munch. Very elegant. Munch, munch. Oh! Uh, my mouth is... <laughs> You'll also find 16 kilobit versions there for the bandwidth, the paired, and a whole lot more. Somebody in the chat room said we should someday get a tour of Steve's bookshelf. If you watch on video, you see all those books behind Steve. I bet, I bet there's a, some classics there. And the blinking lights. Those are the PDP-8s. So, Steve, yep. thank you. Uh, we will see you next week. And uh, we'll do a Q&A. So if you've got a question for Steve, maybe about this subject or anything else we've covered, uh, just go to GRC.com slash feedback. GRC.com slash feedback. Steve, see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.